the cross I bow my knee Where your blood was shed for me There's no greater love than this You have overcome the grave Your glory fills the highest place What can separate me Good evening, and a warm welcome uh, to our service. I'm going to begin with some words from Psalm 27 and verse 4. Uh, David writes, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Well, David was asking this, and we should be asking the same thing, that our greatest desire is to be with God, to gaze on his beauty, and to seek him. And our first song focuses on the beauty of the Lord that David here wants to gaze upon. Our first song is, You Are Beautiful Beyond Description.
going to have our Bible reading now uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, and verses 1 uh, to 8. Uh, We're coming towards the end of our series in Matthew's Gospel Uh, and Matthew along with all of the other Gospel writers wants us to see the historical reality of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we believe is grounded in history. This isn't a myth or a fairy story or anything of the kind. What we believe is grounded in historic fact. We see that in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul the Apostle uh, writes about these things as of first importance. Uh, So Paul is going to come and read 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and verses 1 to 8. First Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. That the Lord Jesus Christ is God and man. That he lived a perfect life. That he died in our place on the cross. Was buried and is risen from the dead. We thank you that these things are grounded in historical reality and not myths or fairy tales. But Heavenly Father, we confess that sometimes we have doubts. We wonder, is what we believe really true? We wonder whether it's really worth following you. We may think, is there life after death? And many other questions. And so we thank you that because Jesus really did die and really did rise from the dead, we can know for certain that our faith is based on reality 
and that it is always worth following you. You are worthy, O Lord. You love us, and we will one day stand before you, and we know all of this because of the truths we read in the gospel. We all need the reminder again of this truth, and thus of the hope that we have because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So remind us, as often we may doubt, that these things of first importance are things that are true. Father, would you remind those who are sick and those who are dying that there is a day where sickness and death will be no more because Christ has risen. Would you remind those among us who are sorrowful and depressed, remind them of the truths of the gospel that can be applied to their lives. Would those truths lift them from despair? Would you remind our children and our young people as they make decisions about how they're going to live their lives in the future that there is no greater life than to live the risen Savior. And, and we pray, Lord, that they would commit to following him. As we look at these truths again, Heavenly Father, shake up the lazy and lethargic, that all of us would throw ourselves into your service, knowing that you deserve our all. And as we look at Matthew's gospel again tonight, turn our eyes again back to the gospel truth. And please, Lord, give us confidence to live for you as your witnesses to these truths in our communities. And we ask all of these things in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Well, if you would turn in the firm foundation that is his excellent word uh, to Matthew's gospel and turn with me to chapter 27 and this evening we're going to be in verses 55 uh, down to the end of that chapter in verse 66. Uh, So last time, uh, when we were in Matthew's Gospel a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw the death of Jesus Christ, and we saw creation's commentary on what that death meant. And as we ended the passage, we saw the Roman soldiers who witnessed the events saying, surely he was the Son of God. But those Roman soldiers were not the only witnesses to what happened to Jesus. And tonight, uh, we see plenty more witnesses. So uh, read, let's read together uh, from verse 55 and see these other witnesses to what is going on. So let's hear the word of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body And tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Well, we've been in uh, Matthew's gospel for a long time. Uh, This is, in fact, uh, I think the 99th sermon on it, uh, not including the series on the Lord's Prayer, but we are now coming to the end. Uh, This, including this sermon, uh, there are three uh, sermons left. But the common theme throughout the gospel, as I think I've said over and over again, is that Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the king promised in the Old Testament, descended from Abraham and David, that comes to save his people from their sins. That's what Matthew is doing as he's writing this gospel. And we've seen him show us this through his genealogy at the beginning, through his birth, his baptism, his miracles, his teaching, through his fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, through declarations people have made about him, And we've seen it through how he died on the cross. And we'll see it ultimately through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus really is the Savior, the only Savior, the only one who can save us from our sins and bring us into the kingdom of God. There is no other way, no other person, only Jesus. And Matthew is showing us that through his gospel. But as we come to the end of his gospel, Matthew focuses in on the witnesses to these events. That's the the focus of the last uh, three sermons, really, is uh, how Matthew focuses in on the witnesses. He grounds 
our salvation in history. Our salvation is based on the historical realities of the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that was witnessed by many people. And if any of those things did not happen, if Jesus was not living a perfect life, if Jesus did not die, if Jesus did not rise, then everything we believe is based on a lie. And so it is essential that we know for sure that what we believe is based on historic fact. And Matthew is showing us that in his gospel. And so as the gospel comes to a close, we have three passages which really relate to witnesses. This week, we see that the death of Jesus was witnessed. He really did die. Next time, we'll see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was witnessed. People saw the empty tomb. They saw the Savior who had died alive again. And then finally, in the last sermon, we'll see how we are called to be worldwide witnesses as Jesus gives his great commission. So it's all about being witnesses, people witnessing the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this week, as we focus uh, on his burial, and you only bury dead people, or at least you should, uh, but here we see Jesus really did die. And so I've entitled this message, Dead and Buried. And although we are looking at the burial of Jesus in these verses, the burial of Jesus is written with the resurrection in mind. And as Jesus is buried, Matthew deals with two common false arguments against the historical resurrection of Jesus. The first argument people make to say, well, he couldn't really have risen from the dead, is they say he did not really die. Well, here we're going to see he really did die. People saw him die. We saw a witness last time, the Roman soldiers. They knew what death was. They saw him die. So that was the first accusation people make. But the second is that the body was stolen. And we're going to see here in this passage that it, there's no way that the body could be stolen. And we see three testimonies that refute these claims. We see the testimony of the women we see the testimony of the wealthy man, and we see finally the testimony of wicked men. So first of all, the testimony of the women. Notice with me verse 55, how at the death of Jesus, so this is at the cross after he's died, many women were there watching at a distance. So this is right after Jesus dies. He's there on the cross. And it's important to note that these women were watching. They saw Jesus die with their eyes. And if you track these women through uh, the end of the gospel here, you see that these women saw Jesus die. In verse 61, they see Jesus put in the tomb. And then in chapter 28, they are the first to see the empty tomb. And these women are the first that Jesus appears to alive again. So the women are key witnesses here to the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there is a, a case in court about the resurrection of Jesus, these women are the, the, the first and prime witnesses that will be called uh, to give account of what they saw. And it's interesting that Matthew, along with the other gospel writers, gives such prominence to the eyewitness accounts of these women. And this is because in this era, women were looked on as inferior in such a way that the testimony of a woman was not trusted like that of a man. The Romans viewed women as weak, and when a Roman father did not want to keep a baby, they would expose the baby, leave them to die. And this often happened to baby girls because the, 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 the women were just not wanted. They wanted to raise men. And so when babies were exposed, it was uh, more often than not little girls that were left to die. 
The Romans saw them as weak. They didn't want them often. And the Jewish view of women, well, it's shown in the rabbinic prayer that was said daily. The rabbis would say to God, Praised be God that he has not created me a Gentile. Praised be God that he has not created me a woman. Praised be God that he has not created me an ignoramus. And funnily enough, Matthew uses that proclamation in a sense because Gentile Roman soldiers in verse 54 are witnesses. The women here are witnesses. And we'll see at the end that the religious leaders show themselves to be the real ignoramuses, don't they? But here is the important point. If the followers of Jesus are going to make up a resurrection story, they would not use women as the eyewitnesses. It's a sign, really, of the trustworthiness of these accounts that they do so. But something important also is going on here in relation to these women. Note the end of verse 55. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Now, due to that view of women that I talked about at the time, it was very unusual for a master with a following to have women followers. But here, Jesus has women who followed him from Galilee, which is where his early ministry was. So they'd been following him uh, for the duration of his ministry, and they'd followed him to Jerusalem, which was a good 80-mile walk, and it shows that they were committed followers and servants of Jesus Christ. And they had the privilege, not just of tagging along and being bit part players in his kingdom, they had the privilege of caring for his needs. These women actively served the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see here, in contrary to the view of the time, is a, a restoration of women to the right and proper place as God created them, to work for him in his world as co-workers with the men who also were following Jesus. And the kingdom that Jesus brings is one where men and women do have different roles, but are equally valued and able to serve their king with dignity. And the value that these women are held in is shown in verse 56, because there we read their names. You can call these women by their names to take a stand and tell you what they saw. They can testify to the historical reality of the saving death of Jesus and all that happened around it, and to the way that they, as women, could serve Jesus Christ. It gave real dignity to, to, to women to be able to, to live like this in the kingdom of God. Now, the main point Matthew is making is about the witnesses, the, the women as witnesses to the death of Jesus. But the value of women also is an important point here. Now, you may think that, well, is this even relevant today? You may think that the, the value that society has of women has risen since the time of the Romans. I would disagree. I think that womanhood is under attack today, especially from the attempted departure from God's creation by the culture believing that it is right for a man to claim to be a woman and the other way around. And if abortion, in places where abortion is selective by gender, so you can abort a child because of their gender, it is always women that are aborted the most. Always. In every place where that is available. And as Christians, we need to, like Jesus did, uphold the value and the dignity of biblical womanhood by joyfully coming under his counter-cultural word of how we are to live. His word is not out of date. It is not old-fashioned patriarchy or whatever other accusations are made. 
This is the good word from our creator of how he made us to be. So we've heard the testimony of the women, but Matthew builds on that testimony with the testimony of the wealthy man. In verse 57, we see that evening approached. Now for the Jewish people, a day began and ended at 6 p.m. And Jesus died on a Friday and the Sabbath would begin at 6 p.m. on that day. And the body of Jesus could not be moved on the Sabbath day. And so if it wasn't going to remain on the cross for longer, it had to be taken down and buried before 6 p.m. on the Friday. And with Jesus not dying until after 3 p.m., there was not a lot of time to get the body down. But there was a man who was willing and able to do this. We read about him in verse 57. Notice in that verse four facts about this man. Uh, he was a rich man. He was from Arimathea. His name was Joseph. And he had become a disciple of Jesus. Now it's interesting that Matthew highlights that Joseph was rich. Interesting because in chapter 19, we read this. Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. But here is a rich man who had entered the kingdom of God. And Luke tells us that he was also one of the religious leaders. Uh, Luke's account shows how he was part of the Sanhedrin, the very religious uh, leaders who had Jesus killed. So this was a very unusual and unlikely follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 58, Joseph goes to Pilate to ask for the body. He obviously had connections because of his wealth and his status as a Sanhedrin member that he could have direct access to Pilate and go there. Now normally the body of a criminal would be left to rot and then they would be placed in a grave full of uh, dishonor. And all of this was in order to warn other people off of flouting the Roman rules themselves. But Joseph does something here quite lovely. He acts as Jesus' family. Because a family won't want to leave the body on the cross. They would take, want to take the body down and bury the body. It was, their, it was the responsibility of family members to do that. And Joseph, with his connections, is able to be that family of Jesus and use his resources to bury his body. And he seriously inconveniences himself here because this was the Passover festival. And touching a dead body would make him ritually unclean for the next day, and so he would be unable to join in the celebrations. But he does this inconvenient and difficult task and takes care of Jesus' body. And it was a costly service as well. Uh, Pilate gives uh, the body to Joseph. And then look at verse uh, 59 and 60 of, of, of what Joseph does and how it costs him dearly. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. So the body was, was wrapped in, in clean linen. Uh, that showed how he cared for the body. Take, he took his time. And the body was placed in his own new tomb. Now only the rich had their own tombs. And the tombs would be cut out of rock and would be a rectangular chamber that was cut into the rock. And they were very expensive to own. And to make. And this one was new, just made. 
the, 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 the rectangular chamber would be there, and then in front of it, there would be a, a, a groove into which the stone was placed that would be rolled in front of the tomb to stop animals getting in there. All of this was new, just bought by Joseph for his family. Because once a non-family member was placed in a tomb, it became unusable for any other family members to use. And so Joseph here was literally giving up his brand new tomb for Jesus to use. This was a rich man who was part of the kingdom of God, using his resources in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin writes that unless wealth and honor are aids to the service of God, we are making false use of them. And for us as followers of Jesus today, as ones who are part of his family, we ought also to be using our resources in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is through generosity with our resources and how we give our money and how we share our homes and our possessions with others. Riches can be a servant for Jesus or a slave that drives us away from him. And here, Joseph of Arimathea was an example of the former. He used his wealth and honor as aids to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also was yet another witness to the reality of the death of Jesus. If Jesus had not really died, Joseph would not have given his brand new tomb for Jesus to go in. Jesus really did die. He must have died. Otherwise, Joseph would not have buried him. Well, before moving on from Joseph, there is one other point of note regarding him. You see, Joseph of Arimathea was also fulfilling Old Testament prophecy regarding Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read the passage of the suffering servant. And in verse 9 of that chapter, we read this. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. When Jesus was on the cross, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. That's what happens to criminals who are crucified. That's where the criminals who he was crucified with would have gone to, a grave with the wicked. But Jesus was with the rich in his death. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Again, all of this was in the plan of God. God had planned the death and resurrection of Jesus in such a way as to leave witnesses to the truth of it, including this rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. So we have the testimony of the women, and we have the testimony of this wealthy man. And finally, and ironically, Matthew shows us that even the enemies of Jesus unwittingly testify to the death and resurrection. We see finally the testimony of the wicked men. Now I say unwittingly because in what we read here, this is uh, the, the, the religious leaders are trying to prevent um, a, a declaration of resurrection. But in how they do that, they become uh, complicit in making it very clear that Jesus has risen from the dead. So in verse 62, we come to the Sabbath day. That's what the, uh, the day after preparation day is. Preparation day is Friday, uh, and then the Sabbath is the Saturday. And on the Sabbath day, the religious leaders in their law were not supposed to meet with Gentiles. But yet here they are breaking their Sabbath law in order to go and meet with Pilate. But they would feel that they have a good reason uh, to do that. Because they were worried 
about what was going to happen next. Notice verse 63. It says there, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. Now it is ironic that the disciples are running scared. They're hiding because of what has happened to Jesus on the cross and have totally forgotten the fact that he said, I'm going to rise from the dead. But there's a group of people that have not forgotten what he said, the religious leaders who have just crucified him. And Jesus had spoken of his resurrection on a number of occasions. Uh, The verses are a bit small, I'm not going to read all of them out, but uh, the references are there. Of In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus saying, on the third day I'll be raised to life. He says it over and over again. Uh, He even says it um, in Matthew chapter 12 when he talks about the sign of Jonah. Jesus said he was going to be raised. And in verse 63, notice how they call Jesus a deceiver because he said these things. They had no right to call Jesus a deceiver, at least until after the third day, if he did not rise. But again, ironically, they are the deceivers because in the way that they entrap Jesus for his death, and we'll see in the way that they try to cover up the resurrection, they are the deceivers, not Jesus. And so in verse 64, they ask Pilate to give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Notice um, in in verse 64 and verse 65 and verse 66, the word secure is there in each of those verses. It's It's a repeated word. We're supposed to get this. They've made the tomb as secure as they can possibly make it so that the body of Jesus can't possibly be stolen. So they want to make it secure until the third day. Because after the third day, if he's still in the tomb, he is the deceiver. Uh, The third day is important here. Jesus, he died on the Friday, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. uh, The first day of the week. This doesn't have to be three literal 24 hours, but the point being he could rise at some point on the third day, which would be the Sunday. People at this time believed that on the third day, uh, the soul uh, departed the body and one was truly dead after the third day. Uh, That's why people, uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John's gospel, were very uh, shocked that Jesus waited till after the third day to go and and see him. Uh, But the main reason for securing the tomb wasn't because they were worried about Jesus' soul. They wanted to stop any possibility that they could come and steal the body and claim a resurrection. And the religious leaders say that this last deception would be worse than the first. In other words, claiming he's risen from the dead would be even worse than claiming he was the Son of God, which was, in their view, the first deception. But if Jesus really did rise, then he would both be risen, and because he's risen, he would therefore be the Son of God. Well, Pilate, no doubt, did not want any more trouble with this man, Jesus. And so he gave them a guard, and he told them to make the tomb as secure as you know how. You do what you like. You make that tomb as as secure as possible. And then we get this delicious irony in verse 66. It's delicious irony because we know what's coming, don't we? So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, the seal uh, was a marker that let people know that this tomb, under no circumstances, was to be opened. It was a marker that says, if you open this tomb, you face the wrath of Rome. That was the point of the, the seal. It was a deterrent. People knew if they go to this tomb and open it, the Romans are coming for you. But they, that would only need to be a deterrent 
if they could get past the Roman soldiers who were professional soldiers posted at the tomb to make sure no one could even get near the seal. And so in securing the tomb, the religious leaders made sure that the body of Jesus could not possibly have been stolen, eliminating the truth of one of the most common arguments against the resurrection. Jesus' body was not stolen. It couldn't have been stolen because they'd made the tomb as secure as they knew how. And so in doing this, the enemies of Jesus end up making the case for the resurrection of Jesus. They make the case more compelling that he really did rise by sealing the tomb and putting the guard there. This reminds me of Psalm 2, where after speaking of how the rulers of this world plot against the Lord and his anointed, we read, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. As the religious leaders are doing this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs because he's using their evil plot to make the resurrection of Jesus even more verifiable. And I mean, it should make us laugh too. There is irony here. It's ridiculous, isn't it, that what they're doing makes what's coming even more certain for us. As we've seen all through these events, the plans of God are unfolding even though the plots of his enemies are ongoing. Nothing will stop the plans of God. Nothing. There is not a seal or a soldier that can stand in God's way. He is enthroned in the heavens. He is in control. He is working all things according to his plan. Nothing will stop him. And we should take great encouragement from that as God's people because sometimes it can feel as though the world is winning, can't it? We see the persecution of God's people in our world. We see the Christian biblical worldview laughed at and maligned and even criminalized. We feel like there's a lack of people coming to faith in Jesus We see evil seeming to flourish in our world and in our own personal circumstances, and we wonder why. We live under these restrictions that can make us feel like the work of God in the church just isn't moving forward, and yet in all of this, God is enthroned in the heavens and is working out all things for his glory, and the plots of wicked men cannot stop the purposes of God for saving his people. But perhaps some of you here today are really rebelling against God like these religious leaders here. Maybe you haven't submitted to Jesus Christ as your king. Well, Psalm 2 encourages us to kiss the Son, to worship him or face his wrath. And so I encourage you to stop that rebellion against God and come to Jesus and submit to him. Well, as we come to the end of this passage, we can be encouraged as God's people that our faith is based on historical realities with witnesses to back up what we believe. Jesus Christ really did die. He was really buried and was sealed in a tomb. And there is no other explanation for the coming empty tomb than that Christ is risen indeed. And so may this give us assurance that what we believe is real. Because we do have doubts sometimes, don't we? We do wonder sometimes. Go back to these truths. They are real. May this give us assurance that what Jesus has done really does bring us salvation. 
May this give us assurance in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in that God really is in control. And may this give us assurance that following Jesus is worth it because it is based on truth. And may these words give us confidence to add our names to those who are witnesses to him. May we take our stand and tell our world that these things are true and of first importance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you have left us witnesses who saw Jesus die, who saw him buried, and saw him raised from the dead. And we thank you, Lord, that even your enemies give witness to the realities of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so give us confidence, Lord. Deliver us from our doubts and our fears. And give us assurance in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our final song helps us to think about the fact that our faith is anchored in truth. Truth that keeps the soul. Will your anchor hold?
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.